I'm going to ask you to stand as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word once again corporately. Pray, God, that as we listen to what the Spirit has to say to us this morning, the songs we just sung will continue to resonate in our hearts, that you are mighty to save. Lord, that we know that you are risen and on your throne Our tongues are employed with hymns of praise. It is for your glory alone that we sing, that we worship together, that we gather at the foot of the cross. Pray, God, that you use me this morning as a willing vessel, albeit a broken vessel. Pray that you'd hide me behind the cross, Lord, that Jesus would get all the glory, and that you would teach us wondrous things from your law. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you seated. Depending on your various backgrounds or where you've come from in terms of church experience, sermon time can be approached a number of different ways. I think of it oftentimes from my lens and just kind of the way that I'm wired is that when you you sit down and listen to a sermon, it's often listening to it from the perspective of waiting for the preacher to just tell you what to do. Just tell us what to do. Maybe some of you are different. Maybe you are thinkers. But I'm often jumping straight towards the application. If I'm hearing something, then I'm automatically starting to think. The wheels are turning about what to do in light of what I've heard. And many people listen to sermons on Sunday with that posture. Many people are like me and hurry towards that application. And I do admit I'm more action-oriented when it comes to learning. For better or for worse, I like to figure it out as I go. Instead of sitting down and thinking, that's just my inclination. I know I need to grow in that area. Where we are here this morning in this text would probably be friendlier to people like me because the writer has gotten to a place where he is going to explicitly tell his audience what to do. We spent time in some theological indicatives leading up to this text. Indicatives 
giving us a mood of the application. It's helping us shape or give meaning or substance to our faith. It's a lot of what we've been spending time with up to this point. And we're transitioning now to the imperatives. We treat the mood of the verbs to tell us what to do with what we have heard, to take that substance, to take that meaning and employ it in specific ways. Now, again, if you're like me, you're naturally inclined towards imperatives and instructions or actions and applications. And maybe as I confess to you about how I'm wired, I also confess that there's times where I will do without spending significant time understanding why, searching for the meaning of the action in which I start to employ. Here in the way that this letter is framed, and this letter is framed as a letter for the purposes of how we understand and read Scripture, but this is really a sermon. This is an entire work that's referred to as a sermon. This writer is preaching to this audience. And we can notice the similarity in this sermon called the book of Hebrews to Paul's epistle to the Romans, where he takes a lot of time in Romans carefully crafting gospel theology for 11 chapters before he jumps into heavy imperatives laid down in chapter 12. He unpacks so many different aspects of what is true about Christ and the gospel and implications of of history and how Jewish uh, tradition has interpreted God and the reason for laws. And then he gives us explicit gospel truths so that we look to Jesus and we understand him rightly and we apply our repentance in the correct way. We give him glory and honor and praise for the right reasons and the grace that's extended to us has meaning, substance. And then he gives specific applications and instructions in chapter 12. Very similar to how Hebrews is constructed. We've learned tons of gospel theology explicitly about Jesus. And we're now being given applications in light of what we have unpacked. The basic point I'm trying to make is that we should be heavily drawing meaning and reason for our faith before we act. There have been so many chapters here giving us meaning and reason for our faith. Our faith is not just an actions-driven conclusion. There's meaning and there's reason behind our worship. If we're not careful, this is a warning that I have to take on myself, if we're not careful, We could see years go by spent in a church without a worshipful, soul-filling, basking in the goodness of Jesus. Instead, just giving ourselves to mindless obligation. If we're careful, we just find ourselves in the thick of doing so much that we have not basked in the reality of that which we proclaim. We haven't spent time thinking through it. We haven't spent time meditating on the wisdom and the glories of Scripture. So our actions don't translate back to the substance of our faith. If we look at our text this morning, we find imperatives. 
because of that, don't necessarily have to break apart an application part of the sermon. Usually that happens towards the end after we've explored a ton of content. We say, okay, now in light of what we just explored, this is what you do. The doing and the application is throughout this text. So here are the instructions in summation that we'll try to explore this morning. Strengthen, strive, and see to it. Strengthen, strive, and see to it. Verse 12 begins with a therefore, which again invites us to consider what we have heard already. And what we will hear, we must hear in light of what we've already visited. We should keep in mind the faithful sacrifice of Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Remember that the hardships we endure is a mechanism of discipline and training. He treats us as sons. So that the instruction strengthen. Right out the gate, we come to this instruction of strengthen. is more than simply a toughen up. It's more than that. But let me also caution you, it's not less than that. There is a toughen up application here. There is something to consider in light of strengthening that which is weak. So there's that baseline expectation, but it's much, much more than that. Tony and I would have failed as preachers if we did not unpack this content faithfully. If we had not unpacked the content of what's being taught to us in Hebrews faithfully, we would have failed to help you realize that the walk of the Christian is hard. It is difficult. There is much trial. And along with that comes much fatigue. You can't downplay these exhortations. It is a trying, tumultuous journey to follow Christ. I'm not going to just sell you on the attractive qualities, but enduring in Christ is a very real and hard truth. You will get tired. You will get weak. You'll want to give up. We all will. At some point, if we are faithfully seeking after Christ, walking in the truth of Scripture, we will want to give up. So when he tells them to strengthen drooping hands and weak knees, he tells them to strengthen these these members of a body that have gotten weak, that have gotten tired, that are laying limp. This is more than just an exhortation to straighten up bad posture. This is a form of physical conditioning relating to a race. He's telling them to condition themselves for a long journey, condition themselves for a race that they must stay consistent in. Some of you may simply be tired of trusting in God. Some of you may may be tired of the whole Christian thing. When the circumstances of life, the trials of an immediate moment hit you, 
with no chaser, just all of it hits you at once. Maybe your posture ends up like drooping hands and weak knees. Reciting spiritual platitudes don't seem to help. I'm here to encourage you this morning because this call is for you. This call is for all of us. It's, it's a reminder that we would do well to faithfully receive and continue to visit throughout the course of our lives. The language here comes from Isaiah, who originally says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You notice that if that's the exhortation, then there has to be an audience that's receiving that and needing that in that moment for specific reasons. Faltering and failing faith are typical of God's people. But to strengthen our conditioning and gain the most from the discipline of training is to look to the author and the finisher of our faith. That's how we are strengthened. That's how we are able to experience life as discipline and training for a long endurance, a perseverance towards the end. Looking to the author and the finisher of our faith is looking to the one who gives us strength. There's no do-it-yourself strength in Christ. There's no mustering up of your own will and your own strength to continue on faithfully. There's none of that in this walk. But there is a will and a determination to endure. And it's the Holy Spirit's power that gives us this endurance. I don't want it to become lost on us that we need the Holy Spirit to help us endure. Like this is not, I read this, I cognitively understand it, I'm going to go out there and give it my all. We need to appeal to God in very, very real moments of reading, studying Scripture, praying to Him, seeking community that's going to reinforce said truth. And by the Spirit's power, we will live what we are commanded to do here. And visit with Ephesians 6 where the call is to pray in the Spirit for perseverance. It's He who's going to help us endure. There's a fight. There's a vigor. There's a sense of grit in the Christian walk where we meet opposition and we don't just fall apart. There is an endurance that helps us make it over the tumultuous journey, that helps us reach the rocky places and still remain faithful. And I fear that a lot of us have, have kind of bought into this reality that we're just supposed to get beat up and we're supposed to remain limp and we're supposed to just lay in the corner bleeding like a helpless victim. I fear that the Christian message has been reduced to just hoping in grace that doesn't necessarily empower a believer to actually conquer sin. To stand fast, to hold fast to the truth, to be firm in the face of opposition, to endure faithfully, looking to Jesus who has been faithful, 
who is crafting testimonies so that we can share with those who do not know him about his love, about his grace, about his strength. Desperately clinging to his unchanging hand. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. You've got a long race to run. Keep fighting. Running with endurance is not the same thing as a sprint or short distance foot race. The goal here in this picture of a race is not necessarily finishing first. It's simply finishing. That's the call we're all enjoined to is this effort to finish. Has anybody in here ran marathons before? Oh, I mean, there's like half shore people. (laughs) No, Tom, I know you have. You bow. You've done well. Boston Marathon just happened, and um, I was happy to read the results. <laughs> Those are some courageous, brave people, and uh, I've not yet reached the point in my life where I desire that, but you guys who are doing the marathons, Godspeed to you. You are an example to us. That anybody who's ran a marathon understands you have to train for that. You're not just going to get out there and just give it your all. You'll collapse probably a quarter of the way through. Whatever you think of your physical conditioning, you have to reorient your thinking and understand that it's going to require some training for you to make it through this race at a pace that is faithful and a pace that is conditioned in such a way where you're going to finish. Again, reading the accounts of those who have run Marathon races, I have not. There's a point where you reach where you don't know if your body can take anymore. You don't know if you're going to even finish. Your mind is already telling you, what are you doing? And yet that last leg, somehow you muster the strength based on your conditioning to continue. Where we are now later in this chapter gives us cause to visit the beginning of this chapter where in verse 1, the call is that let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love the fact that we can visit this text and there's not just this individualistic application here. We are running, but we're, we're not alone. The best expression of the body and the community of faith is that we're cheering one another on as we go. There's a collective endurance. Christ blesses us with the body picture where we understand that we need one another. So if we look at the next exhortation to to make what is lame back into place or put what is lame back into place, whatever is out of joint, to heal that is, is, is a reference to the body. And we go back to Ephesians again, Ephesians 4, 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint 
with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. We are actively strengthening one another. We are helping the body function properly. We've heard a lot of this in Hebrews. This is to encourage one another, Hebrews 10.25. This is to exhort one another daily, Hebrews 3.13. This is building each other up, helping each other finish. So if you're a part of a body and you notice someone is struggling or someone is not running faithfully or someone has kind of reached to the point where they're questioning whether or not they can finish, it's not for you to just pray for them in your own personal prayer closet. It's to reach out and strengthen them. Members of the body cannot be indifferent to one another. We can't afford that. That which is out of joint, we must put it into place. We must be those who are exercising an application of healing. We should be strengthening ourselves personally, personal devotion, prayer, meditation on God's word, personally, and then drawing strength from one another. chapter again starts with picture of this cloud of witnesses that we are encouraged by who essentially are cheering us on. They are cheering us on to finish. Finish well. They know the reward. There is a reward that is laid up for us and we see this cloud of witnesses and we are encouraged to finish. And even visit with Paul's words and what words we should all want to say at the end of our life to say that we have finished our race and we have kept faith. So what are we running toward? Well, we've got some specifics to unpack here. It's first, peace and holiness. We've got strengthen, condition yourself for the race, and now we're at strive. Peace and holiness. Strive for peace with everyone. There's some good training ground. Strive for peace with everyone. You want to get some conditioning? Go ahead and start there. Strive for it. The word strive means in the Greek to seek after eagerly, to earnestly endeavor to pursue peace with everyone. Isn't that a word for our country today? Isn't that a word for the church as it relates to our country? Didn't just say your Christian friends who you really like and agree with. Didn't just say Christians who generally share the same belief that the cross is the answer. It says everyone. You want to train up some endurance? Strive Endeavor earnestly, seek after eagerly peace with everyone. 
Now, peace isn't necessarily the absence of conflict. Let's, let's kind of clear that up. But there's this, perfect, per, this purposeful unification around the truth where we understand what is true and the pursuit that we have of peace is rooted in the truth. And I believe conflict sometimes is necessary on the road to peace, but we, we end up better understanding one another when we strive for peace. And we strive for peace as an expression of holiness. Holiness is that word that maybe some people drift away from because it sounds like you just want people to be perfect. But at its core, holiness is simply defining what it looks like to be set apart. To who God is dwelling in an unapproachable light is distinctly holy from who we are. When Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter 6 approaches God, he immediately recognizes that he is unclean. So God being the perfect and holy representation that he is, is completely separate from who we are. So he calls us to be holy in light of his holiness and being set apart in this striving towards a peace that doesn't look like anything that we would see outside of what God commands us to be makes us holy. Disunity and defiled lifestyles, what unholiness looks like. And there is an expression of the church that uniquely makes us distinct from the world. We strive for this peace. We seek after it in such a way that makes us distinct. As we continue, there are ways in which we remove ourselves from the rhythm of grace in our lives. Where our state becomes such where we do not discern the grace poured out from God to us. And in turn, we don't extend grace to others. Again, visiting with the indicatives, giving meaning and shape to our faith. If we don't visit with that grace that God has continually poured, poured, poured out to us, it will affect the measure of grace that we extend towards others. Grace is the lifeblood of the Christian. So we're at our final application, the command to see to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is a corporate command. See to it. That indicates that you and I and everyone here has this responsibility to see to how this is being worked out in this body. You know that urge we often resist to be sanctified naggers or apply spiritual nosiness? Just that simple text that says, how you doing? We don't even want to send that text for fear of being seen as being nosy or for fear of the response. But there's something that's at work in the believer that sees to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. 
when we, we resist those extensions of grace, we're reduced to gossipers and individualists. So if we're not making the outreaches and we see the issues, because the body does have issues, we're not extending ourselves in grace attached to what we know of the grace extended to us. We don't have the full story and we could become gossipers. We don't have the full story, don't want the full story, and we could become individualists. I'm just worrying about me. I believe the exhortation here is to check up on a brother. Check up on a sister. With nothing more than a grace-filled intent to encourage and strengthen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see how that directly contrasts this element of striving for peace? And here we have an expression of the consequence which causes disarray, disunity, defilement. The root of bitterness image comes from Deuteronomy 29, 18. Beware lest you be among, be, there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Again, another exhortation against apostasy and leaving of the faith. And yet this letter is written to believers. So we have to consider what this means for us. This is written to an established church. And as we've seen in previous chapters, warnings against apostasy are proper and fit for the church. We have to consider these. Because of these multiple warnings, we could conclude that it is possible that Cornerstone Community Church has those with a root of bitterness. The root of bitterness being someone who's prone to follow after the gods of this age. Prone to serve false gods. Prone to give their affection to things that are worthless. This preacher, this writer is exhorting these people. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Watch out for the root of bitterness that springs up and causes disunity and disarray among you because of people who follow after false gods. Give their affections to false gods. Things, things that will not satisfy, things that will direct our attention away from the grace applied to us. The exhortation to see to it, this corporate command where we should all be watchful. As 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, to be vigilant, sober, aware of Satan's schemes. 
There may be some of you who have a heart that's turned towards idols. This will cause trouble if there is an expression of grace towards you. It says, hey, how are you doing? Just wanted to see if you're studying Scripture. I want to share a verse with you. It causes trouble if you're met with a person who has, a, has zero interest in the Word of God. You're going to be met with someone whose heart and affections are given to something else, so providing them an expression of grace will become worthless in their eyes. Now, again, these exhortations, I just want to make clear that these exhortations about apostasy aren't necessarily this call for a witch hunt. Who among you is that? No. It's not the direct result, but there's this corporate call, at least we have with us, this resolute call towards a faithful pursuit of peace and holiness under the banner of God's grace by His Spirit. By God's grace, we're able to guard against this root of bitterness by trusting in Christ, enduring faithfully in prayer, confession of sin, and the study of Scripture. I'm going to ask you, how are you urging one another to run together? How are you urging one another to consider Jesus, to observe his great sacrifice, his despising the shame, his authority and power, his grace extended to us? How are you doing that faithfully amongst one another? Seeing to it that no root of bitterness rises and causes disarray. Being faithful in your pursuit of peace and holiness. Are we urging one another to run faithfully together? Now, the writer here mentions sexual immorality. And I just want to spend just a a moment here, just kind of take this time to acknowledge that sexual immorality is here, first of all. There are extra biblical sources that would attribute this application here, this sexually immoral person. They'd attribute this to Esau and say that Esau is the one here who the writer is talking about. We have no scripture to confirm that, that Esau was this lecherous person who was completely given over to sexual desires. We don't have anything in scripture to tell us that. But even if we don't, we can still visit with why it's said here and how it applies to us. See that no one is sexually immoral. We can at least acknowledge amongst all of us that this is the picture of our culture. Sexually immoral and unholy. This is the picture of our culture. We cannot tiptoe around this. It's very interesting that the writer and many other writers in the New Testament come to this place where they're addressing explicitly sexual immorality. And the times where the church addresses it seemingly in the modern age seems to come under the banner of something that has so impacted our culture in a specific sexual sense. But we're not just talking about the broad-based concept of sexual immorality. 
We dare not tiptoe around this. I think of a person like in, in our context. A lot of times in, in, in churches like these, we can spend a lot of time focusing on the family and how the family looks and um, husband, wife, and kids. But I think of the single person in this context right now. And maybe you don't know, but the dating concept or scene right now is completely flipped on his head. There is a perverse application of what it means to actually meet somebody that doesn't necessarily follow through to the hope of marriage. And as the church, if we are not, if we are not people who are prepared and are actively seeking peace and holiness in the midst of the way that our culture is applying this in such a perverse way, then we open ourselves up to the root of bitterness that will spring up in our congregations. We have to look at this for what this is. How this writer is visiting this audience with a command about sexual fidelity. Asking our questions, are we faithful to the instructions in Scripture when visiting this topic? Or do we just hope it doesn't come up? Because we'll clutch our pearls. I'm going to tell you right now, the pearls are thrown into the river in our culture. And if we are not actively looking at what it means to be pure and holy in the sight of God in light of sexual morality, then we've opened ourselves up to a disarray and dysfunction that Satan will thrive in. Esau sold his birthright. Without going all the way into his story, he's purposefully mentioned here as this ravenously sinful man who took no thought and future promises, instead focused on a temporary pleasure. The example of Esau is antithetical to the endurance approach. He didn't want to endure for the long haul. He wanted what he wanted now, and what he had now did not last. It's a picture of consequences here. And read that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I would be of the belief that this text is not pointing to final judgment. Esau was not cast away from God's promises because of his foolish act, but he did see consequences. There was no renegotiation of the terms of his birthright after he foolishly gave this up. And I hope that what we see from this application and, and what we see from Esau's example as an illustration here, that grace is too rich an offer to reject for temporary pleasures. The grace of God is too rich an offer for us to reject or cast aside for things that will only momentarily satisfy. It's not a picture of condemnation or the extinguishing of God's patience and mercy toward those who are called his people. 
Esau's example is used to illustrate a life given to godless pursuits and a rejection of grace amongst the community of faith. And there are some of us who can resonate with that. I've known people who just checked out for stretches of time, given themselves over to whatever their temporary pleasures are, knowing that there's a beckoning to come back to the cross, knowing there's a beckoning to come back to community, knowing that these promises are just as alive and true as they've ever been, but they have given themselves over to worthless things to satisfy temporary pain. Yes, Esau's story is a commentary in our culture. It's pursuit of godless earthly promises that fail. And looking at Esau's frame of thinking, if you think about it in the context of competition, if we're looking at the race still, his approach to running the race was one that he sought after a worthless prize. He wasted his life, his opportunity, and he bore, the rest, he bore those consequences for the rest of his life. Now, I want to be careful with this statement, but I just want you, I hope you understand what I'm saying here. There are some results that repentance will not fix. You can repent and be forgiven. God's grace always extended to you. But there are decisions that you can make that will cause a consequence that you will see throughout the rest of your life. There are individual decisions you can make throughout the course of your life following Christ that will cost you something. The grace will be extended, the forgiveness will be rich, and you will see God's favor in different ways as expression of all kinds of manifold blessings. But you might walk with a limp as you continue because of the decision that you made to reject his grace. You'll feel that decision and that consequence while you still recognize and enjoy grace. So in light of that, this writer is urging this group of Christians to keep running faithfully. Keep running faithfully. Some of us may be caught in this loop of fatigue where we're seeking temporary pleasure rather than looking to Jesus. But our goal is to finish. Our win is found in being faithful in our stride. What do we take from from this text and text before this? Faithful preachers will preach about apostasy along with grace in order to produce faithful runners. Don't want to fail to obtain grace or come short of obtaining grace. And when we think about the gospel We are washed over with grace again. And when we extend the realities and the truths and the implications of the gospel to other people, we are experiencing another washing of the grace of God, sharing it with others. 
And we ask ourselves, what are some ways that we fall into this condition of failing to obtain grace? When we don't confess sin, when we don't read the scriptures, when we don't pray, we isolate ourselves and we take our gaze away from the cross. What's the flip of that? Confess sin. Spend time in the scriptures. Pray earnestly. Draw into community. Real fellowship, connectivity in the body of Christ. And faithfully keep your gaze on the author and the finisher of our faith. Turn to Jesus. Consider all of these exhortations in light of the author and the finisher. All of these indicatives where we just saw in chapter 11, the hall of faith, by faith, David did this. By faith, Joseph did this. By faith, Samson and Jephthah and Barak and all these people did these things. Then it continues into verse 12 and says, now that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, Keep on running. Lay aside every weight, the things that cling to us, the sin that clings to us so close. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who we have spent so much time unpacking and enjoying this revelation truth, this grace poured out to us in all of these previous chapters. Look to him, visit with those truths, bask in them, understand the goodness extended to you. Understand that the discipline that you experience in the trials of life is him treating you as sons. Understand that God's love will never fail. He became human. He became more than that. He became perfectly human, and then he died for you, and then he was raised to sit on the the throne on high, becoming our mediator, our high priest. Understand that this is who he is, and he is for you. Run with endurance. Strengthen those things that hang limp and and weak and acting, acting like they cannot continue. Strengthen those things. Do not give up. Persevere. Continue to look to him, and you will finish faithfully. You will finish faithfully. We're going to go into a time where we share in grace, we extend grace to one another. This time of communion where we remember what Christ has done. There's no perfect way to say it But there is a sweet, pure faith in the truth that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was poured out. So much so that it doesn't depend on how well I say it or Tony or anyone else says says it, but that the Spirit's power falls on us to help us recognize this wonderful truth. And as we share in communion together, I pray that we meditate on that grace.
I pray that we meditate that his body was broken, his blood was poured out for us, and it washes us all over again and gives us meaning and substance to why we extend this grace to one another. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your mercy endures forever. You alone are faithful. We praise you for all that you have done. We thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who stands to advocate for us now. I pray that that resonates with us all over again. Daily, we exhort one another to that truth. And Lord God, that you would be mighty to save those who do not know you. That you'd be mighty to reveal yourself, to awaken hearts and minds to a truth that goes beyond the godlessness of our culture. That they are viewing the perfect and the holy in a way that you are only able to help us see. Thank you that our worship, our ability to follow these applications is not dependent on us and our skill level, but solely dependent upon your grace. We pray that you're with us, that you bless us during this time. In Christ's name, amen.